0: Brought to you by Business Fights Poverty. Hello and welcome to Business Fights Poverty Spotlight Interviews. I am Katie Heisen, Director of Thought Leadership. Each week, these interviews provide you with the insights from a different perspective of Business Fight Poverty Network, giving you first-hand understanding of how businesses and others are working on some of the world's biggest social challenges. How do you predict? plan for and make the future that you want become reality? Ask Kat Tally, today's interviewee. She is the founder of the School of International Futures. Her day job is to quite literally get governments, civil society and businesses ready for the future. And what qualifies her for this? Kat's CV includes Strategy Project Director at the UK Foreign and Commonwealth Office and Senior Policy Advisor in the Prime Minister's Strategy Unit under Tony Blair and Gordon Brown in the UK. Kat has worked in strategy and international relations with organisations ranging from Christian Aid to Procter & Gamble, the EU Commission, the United Nations and the World Bank, and she is still a member of the United Nations Learning Advisory Council for the 2030 Agenda. During our conversation today, Kat is going to share with us her thoughts on the future, the things she thinks we should be preparing for, and how to get prepared so that the future is a positive one. Kat, welcome.
1: Thanks so much. I'm very pleased to be joining with you here.
0: Ah, oh, great to have you. Kat, I really want to talk about the future.
1: Don't we all at the moment?
0: <laughs> I just yeah, I'm done with I'm done with the present. I want to move on to the future. And a lot of people are talking about rebuilding better from this pandemic, from the kind of shadow pandemics that have also been mooted. What does the future look like? Ah,
1: That's a great question. So we don't actually tell people what the future looks like. We don't do predictions. We don't do forecasts. What we do is we enable people to come together and come up with alternative views of the future. So we do more strategic foresight than prediction. And what's important at this moment, as we come together and think about rebuilding better, is to ask ourselves who is in the conversation when we're talking about what that future needs to look like. So, what we do is focus much more on how do you get different people, next generation voices in the room to describe what we should be building back better to? And then, how do you make sure that we stress test those visions, those ideal scenarios of a better future against the fact that actually probably and possibly the future that we want doesn't happen and other disruptions might occur from issues around biodiversity to concerns about geopolitics. And we need to be prepared for those too. So just to underline, when we're talking about building back better from the pandemic, We need to make sure that we get different voices in the room to describe what that 2030, 2050 future looks like. And we need to stress test those scenarios and visions against what
0: else might happen. And Kat, as you say, you're you're not into predictions, but with your ear on the ground and so close to thinking about that sort of future, what trends are you seeing that perhaps other people aren't quite kind of registering or aren't necessarily on their radars yet, but should be? So I here are some
1: ideas on things that have been rumbling around for a while, but that are really coming to the fore at the moment. I think, first of all, is the level of energy and dynamism and confidence in the African continent. I think people don't realize that half the world's population is going to be in Africa by the end of this century. It's an insane picture where the rest of the world populations are shrinking and we've hit more or less peak workforce. So, you know when our populations are getting older and and the continent of Africa is where this is very, very different. And in fact, especially with the responses around the pandemic, the level of innovation, the level of embracing of technology, and you know, even some of the kind of more difficult stories to, to to face as well. You know, the the kind of conflict on the streets of Nigeria that has been going on for the past couple of months. This is about, you know, changes happening, disruption happening, opportunities as younger people in Africa really start coming to the fore and bringing their skills and their qualities and their innovation and their ideas to bear. And I think that that whole story of the confidence and the opportunity across the African continent is one that I'm really seeing rising up the agenda. That's one trend. Another trend I find quite interesting is around the growing importance of intergenerational fairness. Now, we've talked about issues around fairness around gender, around different minorities, ethnicities, and race, sexuality as well. I think the question of fairness and rights and distribution between generations alive now and in the future is going to become an increasingly salient question. What I mean by that is there's been a growing concern over the past 10 years, I think, since the global financial crisis of Who benefits from the welfare state, for example? You know, who is incurring the costs of the fact that pensions are not going to be as good in the future, or the fact that housing is really difficult to get, and also that education is becoming more expensive, and also when we're starting to think about the kind of environmental costs and legacies that we're leaving our children, it's just like, in some ways future generations don't have it as good as we do. So this issue has already been rumbling around, I think, for the past uh, decade. And you see that very much with Greta and various other movements. But, But now we've got COVID and all governments are about to make some huge investments in order to restart their economies and to build back better as well, of course. But the question is, Who's benefiting and who's going to pay from those investments? And in particular, what's the generational distribution? Because young people are going to be paying back these these investment plans for the next 40, 50 years. So we need to make sure that you know, what those investment plans are building towards are something that they're really benefiting from, and future generations as well, of course. So that intergenerational fairness question is, I think, going to become... Really important. And for the first time, I think politicians are going to realize that the long term consequences of the decisions that they're making today is for the first time a politically salient issue, and that young people in particular are going to start voting for it a lot. So that shift and that interest in the long term, I think, is also a noticeable development. The final development, I think, is not so much a a trend as an interdependency, we're quite careful about our uh, words, our vocabulary in in the future space. And so if you see that a trend is a kind of a driver going in one direction, in particular, I think the interesting question, I think, for the 2020s, one of the interesting questions is, how does the glide path of movement towards a post-carbon economy, so how does the kind of movement away from hydrocarbon based economic model so with all the things that that entails and that includes you know the fact that a lot of governments and countries in let's say who are hydrocarbon producers are going to be moving away and you know having a different form of political structure as kind of the rents that come from hydrocarbon resources are going to dissipate you know so that's going to generate a whole series and consequences of geopolitical and governance changes in some quite fragile countries: Angola, in North Africa, um, etc. So that's mainly going to be a positive one uh, development, although you know transitions are always complicated. But overlay that. We don't know what the guide path looks like, how quickly we're going to move to a post-carbon. Global economic model. We just know that at some point it's going to have to happen. Depends on how costly and how late we do, the number of stranded assets we need to kind of suck up and you know who ends up paying for that is a question. But the other question is, how does that glide path intersect with the glide path of climate change and environmental and ecological pressures that come from global warming? And in particular, if you start looking at countries like Mozambique who look as if they're being hit by cyclones repeatedly, if that means that you end up having pressures like you know sustainable livelihoods end up being undermined and you get internal displacement from rural to urban areas or uh, across borders, how does that play out with the kind of the change of a movement to a post-carbon economy so those Interdependencies of those two glide paths, I think, are going to very much shape the geopolitical and geoeconomic realities of a lot of the world's population that live in some of the more fragile and less resilient areas.
0: Well, a deep breath from my, my MCAT. I've been taking copious notes, and I suspect anybody listening might also be doing the same. You mentioned in there about the kind of intergenerational fairness. During 2020, the sort of global pandemic around COVID feels as though it sort of exacerbated a number of inequalities. I want to zoom in a little bit on gender for a moment. There's been talk of a kind of shadow pandemic around gender-based violence taking place concurrently with the global COVID pandemic. With a sort of focus on that kind of gender space, with your kind of international futures lens what do you think this means to business and how they can tackle this particular social problem but potentially other social problems as well
1: so i think businesses are absolutely key stakeholders in processes of coming together to reimagine what a better future looks like now let me give you an example we're looking at some work at what does a gender transformed humanitarian system look like out to 2045 what does it really mean to engage with some of the the drivers that are happening over the next twenty five years? Whether it's um, AI, whether it's new forms of conflict, whether it's new opportunities that are coming from working with different kinds of women women's groups in local areas. So there are huge amounts of opportunities for businesses to join not just traditional humanitarian actors, but also new humanitarian actors and networks of women's rights activists, including domestic workers, to come together to radically drive a transformational change in the next 20 years. So that's, I think, the key, you know, that I I hope that both businesses can be in the room to help imagine what a positive future looks like, to be aware of the risks that might happen with future um, crises of the kind of pandemics that we've been going through, but also might include issues around famines or um, other forms of disruption, but then also be critical actors in actually taking steps immediately on that roadmap towards that better future. So we're thinking about the SDGs, which are for the first time a kind of complex, universal, interdependent way of looking. At the world around us, it gives us an aspirational target for and vision for what a positive 2030 looks like. You know, we need to do things differently. We can't have a trajectory of business as usual, because if we do, we're not going to hit those amazing, that amazing vision for 2030. We need to come together now to really kind of go, okay, how do we harness the, the benefits of emerging technology, the kind of, you know, the demographic dividend that is a kind of youth bulge in Africa all these potentially positive assets, come, bring them together as businesses, governments, local communities to think about how we do things differently and what does a better transformed future look like that harnesses the benefits of synthetic biology to address zero hunger rather than just waiting until we realize that actually this emerging technology has been adopted in a way that excludes you know, and marginalises many of the poorer people on the planet. So it's like being ahead of these issues and harnessing and spotting those opportunities that emerging technology can provide is a really important way in which businesses can kind of contribute to this whole conversation.
0: And for people who listen to these podcasts with me often, they'll know that I'm quite practical and pragmatic. I'm curious to delve a little bit deeper into the how. Mm -hmm. So... Kat, you're obviously listening to and hearing from and working with a number of kind of global policymakers, young people on the ground, businesses, and others. From the experience of that, from listening to how the sort of best and the leaders are doing it really well, and also where things aren't working very well, what would be your advice or how should those types of organizations and individuals build resilience and stay ahead of the curve, sort of step into those futures? So I'd, I'd have two pieces of advice. One is um, when you're, you're
1: listening and you're, you're trying to, to, to challenge your, you know, people have an official view of the future. We call it the official future. If you're in your organization trying to challenge that, you need a network of young alternative voices to, to listen to. So to, to listen to different signals. OK, so actively go out and seek next generation perspectives and let them set the agenda. I'm very proud that we run a sensing network of 350 young foresight practitioners from around the world with a focus on the global south. They have just, today, which is I think the 16th of December, Friday, we've just, they've just published an article on BBC Futures, basically giving a view of the pandemic from around the world. And they are the kind of people that large institutions, governments, businesses, civil society organizations should constantly be engaging with to kind of listen, but also people in your organizations and in your stakeholder groups. It's just about creating the space for genuine listening and letting them set the agenda. So there's that first point. So that li- Act, you know get a good signal from the future but then as Kodak found out it's not enough to detect the signal from the noise. Kodak if you remember actually saw the advent of the um, digital camera but will, did not react as an organization as a company to be prepared for the changes in the market. So, it's not enough just to detect the signal. You also then need to act on it. And that requires institutionalization. That requires, as an organization, as a company, or as a ministry in a government, or as a civil society organization, or as the UN, as many UN organizations are doing, you need to build the capacity to act on that signal. And that often requires you to have a unit in your organization that is tasked with looking forward. And then that unit has strong connections both to you as a senior leader, but also strong connections to the rest of the organization to feed in in planning processes, in resourcing choices, in risk management approaches. So that's how you
0: make it tangible. Really useful advice there, Kat. And for anybody listening, I will put a link to that article into the words that sit alongside the podcast itself. Kat, I'm also really interested in you as a person, as a woman leading the School of International Futures. How do you personally lead change, stay resilient, and, and make sure that you kind of make, make the difference?
1: Oh, and, and what a year to ask that question. And Yeah, Katie, okay. I'd be really interested in your perspectives on this question. So my, my two thoughts on that is the, the mission and the purpose is everything. You know, you get up and you overcome obstacles and you get stuff done because the mission, you know, and the the purpose of the organization just motivates me so much. I'm so passionate about it. And we believe that strategic foresight or this skill, if you like, this approach or mindset, which is, you know, thinking systematically about the future helps you disrupt and create a better today. And that that's such an important skill, that we should be taking that skill to different professions, different communities. You know, it's part of what good governance looks like in the 21st century. Policymakers should be using it. Accountants, everybody, all communities, when communities come together, uh, because at the heart of what we think, it's like a community coming together to collaboratively talk about their own futures, that that is a deeply empowering act and that in a world of you know political failings quite frankly our leaders look around us are failing that act of agency is one that's incredibly important because it gives people power back at a time of uncertainty when uncertainty itself without that kind of support causes so much pain and you know and and, and lack of power so we i personally and This is the second point, which is that like the people around you is also what makes you get out of bed and and personally resilient in the 2020 world. You know, if you are passionate about that, if the rest of the organization is passionate about that, which it is, then that is just hugely motivating. And being surrounded by people who are as different to you as possible, but really committed to that same goal is what makes work an absolute pleasure because it's emergent you know we never know what's going to happen it's it's very much a kind of random walk if you like from day to day and week to week but we're constantly focused on that outcome and we always know that every single step we take gets us there.
0: I could listen to you talk about how to stay resilient forever. Drawing our conversation to a close now, is there one piece of advice or one call to action you would like anybody listening to this conversation to act on?
1: Well, I'd love you to get in touch, that's for sure, and and be part of this exciting mission. So please do get in touch on www.soif.org.uk. Please get in contact with me, Kat. Always fascinated and interested in how we can take futures work to different spaces and different communities. But I would also kind of leave you perhaps not with the work, my words, but the words of Graham Lester, who's an amazing thinker in this space, which is about the kind of the nature of change that we're going through at the moment. And the fact that our work as we're preparing for the future is, yes, we're midwifing the future as it emerges, but there is also a role of being hospice bearer for the dying. And I think it's about respecting the closing of the old and the legacy. I'm doing that gracefully and beautifully, as well as kind of birthing the new and holding those two at the same time that is so important in, in the world that we're in at the moment.
0: On those wise words, Kat Tully, thank you very much for your time today. Thank you, Katie. All the best. And if you like what you've heard today, please do rate and subscribe to us. I would also love to hear your feedback, so please do drop me a line at any time. I'm Katie at businessfightspoverty.org. Many thanks. Brought to you by Business Fights Poverty.